America and parents have found one more thing to be afraid of for their kids. This time, it's social media and its impact on girls specifically on today's Citizen Stewart show. Welcome to the Citizen Stewart Show, a podcast about democracy and education for listeners who care about the state of learning in America. I'm your host, Chris Citizen Stewart. I'm also the CEO of Brightbeam, a digital advocacy group fighting to achieve justice for every child. My normal partner is not here with me this week. It would normally be Ravi Gupta, but he sent along somebody who actually can fill his shoes much better than he does. I'm just saying that to poke at him. So when he listens to this, he knows that I said that. I'm sure he'll love that compliment. (laughs) We have with us Ricky Schlott, who is one of Ravi's co-hosts for the Lost Debate podcast. And we're doing a Lost Debate mix-up. Ricky is not just on that podcast. She's also an ascending star in the world of media. She's a New York Post columnist, a contributor at Reason Magazine, of which I'm a sustaining member. Thank you very much. She's also a fellow at the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, also known as FIRE. And I also follow them on Twitter, and you should too. And she's the author of a forthcoming book. Ricky, I feel like you're not doing enough in life. I feel like you're just slacking <laughs> along. It's been a pretty crazy year or so, but I'm coming to you live from the New York Post's office, which is why it's framed behind me. This is not my typical, <laughs> this isn't my bedroom decor. But yeah, it's been an interesting couple months, but the book manuscript is in and so some weight off my shoulders and yeah, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. So you're actually done with the book. I submitted the manuscript that's off in the hands of editors. It'll come back and then there'll be more backs and forth. But, you know, getting the getting the body out and off my desk is a very big relief. Well, I just want to celebrate you because like many people my age, I've had like three or four books in me and I've never gotten the manuscript off to the publisher. Even when I've had great opportunities to make it happen, it still hasn't happened yet. So maybe I'll just kind of take a little bit of your steam and your energy and get mine done too. So Um, today I wanted to talk about when I knew I was going to have you on, I know that you had wrote this piece for the New York Post. Folks should go out and look for it. It's an article that you wrote back in 2021 about Gen Z and the effects of social media addiction. And you were speaking specifically about Instagram. Since then, there has been kind of like popularized research around the effects of social media specifically on girls and now in more recent research specifically on liberal girls because uh, research is showing that it has more of an impact, negative downward spiral impact for that particular population. And I just have to say at the outset of this conversation, this is what you should know about Chris Stewart, is that like I'm the get off my lawn guy. Like, I don't believe anything. Like, you know, you can tell me, well, this is what research is saying and this is the trend. And here's what I often do with an issue like this. I'll say there's nothing new under the sun. There was a time when people freaked out about radio. They freaked out about TV. They freaked out about the internet. They freaked out about rock and roll. They freaked out about rap music, all of which I think have impacts on young people of some sort or another. But was the sky ever falling in any of those situations? I tend to try and be more sober about the big proclamations about these trends and these problems. Why do you think I should be more thoughtful or why should I take this one more seriously? I mean, I think the speed at which this technology was adopted, full scale, the hours that young people are spending every single day on it. I mean, I don't think that there's a historical parallel for something that went from being not a part of people's lives, social media before 2012 to now, like on average hours a day for young people who are still growing and developing. Certainly it's ubiquitous. It's not just like in this, in certain little pockets of society, it's pretty much everyone. And we're all kind of guinea pigs right now. And it's impacting younger people in the youngest people the most. And so I think, you know, there was not a lot of attention put towards what might happen if kids are, I mean, we have an iPad generation now, but what happens when, when, when kids are plugged in from day one, when screens become their social life, when they kind of turn in on themselves as a result, when, I mean, it it just, the statistics to me, it's, it's experimental. It's sudden. The self-harm and suicide ideation in young people skyrocketed around 2012. And, you know, there's people saying like, oh, maybe mental health diagnoses is just because we're more culturally aware and people are talking about it and they feel more open about it. But the rates of self-harm and suicide also skyrocketed at the same time. So people are following through. The hospitalizations are happening. I think there's just 
so much going on with the adolescent brain that fundamentally changing what it's doing for hours a day, every single day, and expecting there not to be some sort of consequences or side effects is naive as much as I do think I'm, I'm not like a total Luddite in some ways, perhaps a little bit, but like as much as I, I am cautious about the moral panic thing, I, I think that there's cause to say, I'd much rather have this conversation now, talk about it as concerned people, as a concerned older member of Gen Z, as concerned parents, as concerned teachers, and figure out how we can solve this and make it a better thing rather than like call in this government cudgel to figure it all out. But I think it's it demands attention. And certainly the self-harm and suicide statistics are demonstrative of that fact. Well, this is where this last part of what you just said is actually my fear. My fear is that when we get alarming data we rush to judgment, we don't dig really deep into the numbers of what it's telling us, and then there becomes the call for a government solution. Mm -hmm. So see how fast that happens? Yep. Like we go from, we got this body of information. We see some correlations, not causation, but some correlations. Let's attack the correlation and let's figure out what we need to do about it, which usually leads to a government solution. I mean, do you have any fear that we're going to jump to that stage of things and end up with solutions that don't necessarily address the problem? A hundred percent. And I've not been gung-ho on the government regulation front, frankly, because I think most of our lawmakers don't have the life experience or technological skills and understanding to be making these legislations. I do think, you know, the only one that I am open to is an internet age of like minimum age of 13 for social media companies and having that be enforced potentially. I think that's could be just in the common interest. But, you know, my, my biggest thing is being 22, being somebody who did grow up. I had an iPhone when I was 10. I was on Instagram by the time I was 11. I have a great mom who would never have dreamed that it would have all these side effects ever. And like very protective of me and made sure it didn't go too awry. And fortunately for me, it didn't, but I watched very different experiences unfold with a lot of my friends. And I think I'm, I'm fortunate enough now at my age to be able to look back on that experience as someone who lived it, but is now old enough to kind of talk about it with, with some hindsight behind me. And I think that there's a responsibility for, for younger people who were kind of the guinea pigs to speak out about this stuff. I think there's a responsibility for parents to learn from the data that like my mom didn't have back at that point in time and err on the side of caution to take things into our own hands first and foremost. And, you know, I think having as much of the cultural conversation around it is actually a healthier thing because it doesn't necessarily have to conclude in a government intervention. You can just, I mean, I think I'd much rather use my life experience to inform some parents who might say, hmm, I, maybe I shouldn't let my 12-year-old be on, on social media or maybe I should keep the screen time at a minimum. I mean, you mentioned screen time and that's where I start thinking we have had this conversation though before. The amount of, in my lifetime, the amount of television time that people watched skyrocketed. And in my generation, in my youth, actually there was this really big push to curb the amount of TV that we were watching. And it was astronomical. It went from, you know, kids didn't have much time to watch every program at one point. But by the 70s, there were kids that were having full media diets, like of TV. And it was everything from, I mean, this is going to totally date everything I'm going to say here, but, you know, $6 million man, which led into Battlestar Galactica, which led into, and just keep going down the list. And these shows had some salacious parts. They had things that they were teaching young people. They were accused of teaching young people loose morals and values in all kinds of ways because it was the time. And in the 80s, you know, you had a similar push, but in that case, it was music. It was this idea that we have to legislate music because it's having a heavy metal music. Heavy metal became the object and then hip hop became the object of adult fascination for a period of time and it was ruining kids. Heavy metal was introducing them to all kinds of concepts of like Satan worship and loose morals and smoking and drug use and, you know, all kinds of things. And then the internet came along. And the internet in the beginning was just Yahoo and a little bit of Google and just a, it was the Wild West for a while. And as I said before, it became also a similar thing where it was associated with a lot of ruining the youth. So this one feels a little bit like that, except for it's harder to make arguments about because in all of those previous cases, I don't think that there was widespread agreement across liberals and conservatives. In the past, those were mostly conservative driven moral panics that the kids were being ruined. Now, I think, you know, there's this article from the New York Times that I find a little bit interesting because it's in support of 
it's 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 uh, Michelle Goldberg from the New York Times says, "Don't let politics cloud your view of what's going on with teens and depression." And in it, I think she's making a case. Hey, maybe we need to be a little bit kind of cautious about where some of the conservatives are going on this, but that doesn't let left-leaning people off the hook for at least treating this fairly, like looking at it, because the data does show some things that liberals also should be attuned to. But one of the things I found interesting in the pushback to Jonathan Haidt, who is one of the people who has a big body of work that I think is pushing kind of the right-wing moral panic on these things, is I don't think it gets all the way down to the bottom of answering the question, why? Like, is just social media just bad, so it's just having a negative effect on the psyche of young people, and that's it? It's just, or why? Which which platforms, which groups of kids, who is it having the most impact on, and why is it having the most impact on them? Are all these questions, there's this bundle of questions that have to be answered before we can jump to the conclusion that it's social media just being bad. And one thing that I'll point out is the majority of parents don't even use parental controls. So you were 10 when you got a phone. Lots of parents hand their kids a phone and say, have at her. The number of them that do parental controls or control or track or monitor what their young people are doing is very small. I think it's like a third of parents that actually use the parental controls. It's a little more than that, that do the actual tracking and understanding of what their kids are using and digging in. For me, that doesn't feel like a world problem. That feels like a parenting issue. What would you say? Yeah. I mean, I don't think there's, you're not getting pushback from me on that front. Like consistently, I I think there's, I've been saying that I'd much rather see young people that are old enough to kind of look back and say, "Hmm, this might not be the healthiest way to spend my time to make choices. There was a poll I saw recently. Let me see if I can find it. That was like something like 60% of Gen Z, like people in my kind of older Gen Z demographic were saying that they're pulling back on their screen time and social media usage, which I think is a positive. We certainly aren't just uh, zombies being controlled by Mark Zuckerberg and we can make our own decisions. (laughs) But I think there's, there's that front. I think certainly like the reason that I'm speaking out about this as much as I am is because I've seen firsthand that my friends that are most online growing up have had the worst mental health outcomes. It seems to be a correlation for in my worldview and my life experience. And so I'd much rather tell parents that, you know, this is something to be mindful of. And there are tools that you can take into your own hands. I think one of the best things that you can do is work with parents in your child's friend group and say, you know, there are six of us in the friend group. Let's make sure that no one goes on social media until they're 13 or until they're 16, because the FOMO thing is really why kids end up going on. It's not because you need to be scrolling through or posting pictures of your like prepubescent self. Like, I don't think that there's that drive. It's just feeling as though there's a a social life that's going on that you're not a part of. So I, I agree with you on that front. Also on the screen time front, I think it's true that there actually, this is something, so John Haidt is a friend of mine and he, this is something that he has revised his thesis on because roughly he was expecting to find screen time to be the issue here Mm -hmm. and then found that was not the case because, you know, there's, there's screen time with video games, there's screen time with watching YouTube videos. But if you were to control for who is on social media platforms, that does have a correlation with who is having these negative mental health outcomes. And it's not surprising to me that it's particularly girls, especially with these social kind of like Instagram is basically about here's how pretty I am and here's how pretty everyone else is. And here's how many likes everyone has and who has the most followers and teenage girls are just so remarkably suggestible and so remarkably attuned to their reputation and their stature. And this is just the evolutionary nightmare that hijacks all of those insecurities that young women have. And I think just totally distorts their their self-image and their self-esteem. And so I've seen that consistently in terms of like specific platforms. And also Tumblr was a particular disaster with self-harm and suicidal ideation sort of content. And that certainly has panned out from what I've seen with my friends as well. Noted. I think with the different platforms, it would be interesting to see, like the number one platform is YouTube. Mm -hmm. And it would be interesting to see what young people are searching for and what they are uh, consuming in YouTube. It's the number one. It's it's got the largest share of young people. 95% actually of young people use YouTube. So the number that use Tumblr, for instance, has tumbled. TikTok has kind of picked up all those weird little kind of crevices of the internet where I think this stuff thrives in terms of like self-harm content and mental health oriented content that I think when you have a group of people who feel that they have mental health issues, it sounds theoretically like that could be a nice little like group therapy thing, but it gets very dark very quickly. 
and that played out on Tumblr and then kind of is being exported into crevices of TikTok, I've found. Do you think that's it? That's the reason so that people come onto social media and then they encounter really damaging feedback? either content or bullying or mean people or whatever it is that they encounter. Could there also be another explanation, which is that with the explosion of a platform to be able to find information about mental illness, to be able to find information about that gives name to what it is that you are experiencing. I mean, we used to have young people who would experience the exact same thing, suicidal ideation, but there was no name for it to them. There was no platform to understand about it. I mean, you have Logic, the hip-hop artist, Logic, who popularized a song that had a 1-800 number in it for a suicide hotline, and it exploded, right? Mm-hmm. It was popularized. And, you know, the, the number of people that always were feeling that actually now had a venue with which to name it, to access it, to put it out there. Could that be part of an explanation also here? I think certainly. I mean, I think there's a, a fallacy where people think that the algorithm means that you're getting thrown like 10 year olds are getting thrown crazy self-harm content at random. It's you, you have to seek these things out and stuff. But I think the problem is a lot of people seek out information and answers and then find people who are so much further down that rabbit hole and sometimes get pulled down with them. And I think that's the same with eating disorder oriented content. You know, there's girls on TikTok treating tips and tricks on like how to keep your calories down or what's easiest to binge. Like it's crazy. The sort of stuff that, you know, if you're a kid that has body image issues and then you research that and you're a young girl, like theoretically you, you meet people who are already further down that rabbit hole. That's not to say that we should censor all conversation about mental health on social media, but it's certainly to say that I think particularly young women are suggestible on that front. There have been some really bizarre side effects, I think, of that suggestibility, including there was a Tourette sort of mimicking symptom that people were showing up to hospitals around the country or around the world with. Young girls who had no prior signs of Tourette's, who had somehow across language barriers, across geographical barriers, we're all showing up at hospitals and emergency rooms and doctors with a tick where they were saying the word beans, which is so specific, including women who did not speak English. So that wasn't even a native word in their mind. And there was a long form Wall Street Journal article about this, but effectively there's a Tourette's influencer on TikTok who I'm sure is wanting to raise awareness and this and that. It's not to place any blame on anyone, but her tick was beans and she's had millions and millions of followers and all these girls happen to also follow her. And so there's some degree of what to me that sounds like a fake story, but like you can search it up in the Wall Street Journal and there's a long form article about a lot of doctors saying that this is not Tourette's, but this is clearly mimicking it in a very subconscious fashion. And there's some degree of social contagion going on that teen girls are just susceptible to. And so I think we're allowing this experiment to play out with young women, particularly. It's not I've watched it happen with my peers. And I would say, you know, the best thing that we can do is just have a conversation about it and say, like, to your credit, yes, there's there are a lot of unanswered questions. Certainly, John Haidt has not answered everything, but he has put together, in my opinion, the largest body of research and meta-analysis that we possibly could have at this point in time. But the problem is you also can't... The controlled studies, you can't say, oh, let's let's just put some kids in a in a box away with no social media and some others, let's just let them go haywire and let's see who kills themselves because there's obviously huge moral issues with that sort of study. And then you also, if you're going to look at the correlations of the kids who are not on social media at all and see if they're faring better, you know, there's so many other factors. Could that mean that their parents must be more involved if they're keeping them off social media? Does that mean that they might be more likely to have a certain political ideology or a certain religious background? And so you can't really parse all these things out. So I think the best thing we possibly could have is this meta-analysis that Haidt put together, which 55 studies found a significant correlation between poor mental health outcomes and social media usage with only 11 that found little or none. Yeah, it feels like such a, this is why I'm probably a little bit kind of pushing back on it. Not a little bit, a lot of it pushing back on it. It feels like a very specific conservative case to make. I mean, in his book, Coddling the American Mind, there are three things that he really targets as kind of the problem. And this is where it gets away from, I think, 
think information and data, and it gets really more into building an ideology and a worldview. And the three things that he talks about are what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. And this is a mentality that he sees within young people, specifically young people that haven't wanted him and others to speak on their college campus. And there's been a response from people like him and Brett Weinstein and Barry Weiss and whatever, this older group of people who think the reason that young people don't want me to speak on their campus or want to exercise their agency and stopping me from speaking on their campus is because they have a deficiency of sorts that I'm going to diagnose. And here it is. They're weak or they're snowflakes. So what doesn't uh, kill you makes you weaker. I totally made that up. I totally just made this up about them, but I'm going to make it into a real thing over time. Uh, Always trust your feelings. You know, these aren't smart kids. These are just kids that are emotional. And the reason they don't want me to speak on their campus is because they have this weakness, this intellectual weakness. And life is a battle between good people and evil people, the oppressors and the non-oppressed. And because, you know, I might be a person who walks around with the idea that the world doesn't have oppression and that I'm not the ancestor class of a a group of people that have done things that I find to be untasteful or distasteful, I'm going to give that a name also too. So those are the three things. This is where it starts to feel less about those 55 studies. And it starts to be more of a reason to psychoanalyze a group of people and attach it to something that I'm too old to understand and don't like as the problem. There are a lot of things that can cause suicidal ideation like poverty and like social strife and like stratification of of races and classes throughout history. And those are all a correlation to the thing that we're even talking about right now, because even within those 55 studies, if you look at this question around why is it affecting liberal girls more than others, right? Well, it turns out that if you look at one of the most important studies on this, there's an answer to that, right? So 12th grade students, conservative 12th grade students consistently reported fewer internalizing symptoms than those of other political beliefs, indicating that the conservative identity may be protective for mental health in adolescents. Among the socially privileged male adolescents with highly educated parents, conservative ideology may act as a psychological buffer by harmonizing an idealized worldview with bleak external realities. And if you know, I were to go on, what it digs down and it says is the unprivileged groups, those without parents, without college degrees, conservatism alone does not act as a protective mental health device for them, specifically for black girls. And if you look at this thing, this question around... Why are so many liberal girls being affected? You have to look at the demographic of who makes up liberal girls more than who makes up the other groups. So this is where the drill down to me becomes the intellectual drill down becomes really important rather than accepting a whole body of work as kind of decisive on the question rather than being what it is. It's a body of work, but it has an ideological driver. Well, I think if you actually look further into those statistics, the people who are having the worst outcomes in terms of suicide and self-harm are wealthy, white, liberal women. So it's a subset of that larger group. And I think that it's potentially there's an ideological factor or a cultural factor context. I'm certainly not interested in like pathologizing and saying that this is why some young women are having worse outcomes. But it is that the more privileged subset of liberal women that are having that have experienced this sudden surge in the age of social media. You can make of that whatever you would like. But I also just so you're aware, I'm co-authoring with Greg Lukianoff and John Haidt, who wrote The Coddling of the American Mind. And of the three of us, I am the only person that's even slightly on the right. So I do not agree with the characterization that he's a conservative <laughs> zealot by any way, in any way, shape or form. I didn't say zealot. But, I just want to be clear. I didn't call him I a don't, zealot. You know, but, I, yeah. I wouldn't say though, I, I think there's two separate conversations to be had because putting together a meta analysis is none of this is his original studies and he's just trying to compile the best broadest you know you you control for biases of different researchers when you pull together a ton of stuff and see you know where does it draw you so that's one separate body of work and then I think you know he has more exploratory questions here I certainly agree that these like they call them the great untruths. And these are ideas that I think have perforated like certainly college campuses. I mean, the idea 
that, and also he's never, I don't think he's ever had a college shutdown or anything like that, that he wasn't allowed to speak at at their school. But I I don't think he's trying to come in and and say, I want to share all my conservative beliefs or that replacing your liberal ideologies with conservative beliefs is the solution to anything because I'm certainly more conservative than anyone that I'm working on this book with. But I think like some of the interesting questions are how attitudes have changed in terms of locus of control. And I do think that is pretty obvious when you parse out conservatives versus liberals that in terms of American 12th graders, if you ask them, whenever I try to get ahead, somebody or something stops me around the social media era. It's crazy. Like conservative girls, for some reason, go down. Conservative boys go up. Liberal girls go up. So they think that external things are stopping them, which could absolutely be true. But to agree to that general broad statement and feel as though life is outside of my control, that I am not I'm not in control of my own future or my own destiny, that these forces outside of me are going to forever keep me down. This is obviously this is a very person to person thing. But that sort of attitude potentially could be contributing to a feeling that life is hopeless and I shouldn't even be alive or I should harm myself. And so I think that's an interesting question. And I am not going to go out on a limb and start saying why this is the case. But certainly around that period of time when social media came out, there's an explosion of 12th grade liberal girls saying that something else is in control of my life. And, you know, if, if you look at cognitive behavioral therapy, which is what the coddling of the American mind hones in on, because my co-author Greg was personally very, very depressed and suicidal and ended up doing cognitive behavioral therapy to kind of root out these distortions in his mind. Like think of some examples, but like catastrophizing and like black and white thinking and emotional reasoning. And he started looking around. He's a First Amendment lawyer and he he runs fire. And he realized that a lot of those mindsets were being kind of taught on a kind of subversive level on college campuses, including the idea that what doesn't kill you makes you weaker, which I saw firsthand, 100% on my campus, that there were people who felt like, if I hear something that's offensive to me, it's I'm endangered, that your words can wound me, that I can't handle it. I need trigger warnings. On At NYU, we had a bias response hotline on the back of our ID cards next to like 911 in the Student Health Center, as though a progressive college campus in one of the most progressive cities in the world is somewhere where we should all expect that we would be offended or that someone would do something to us and that we're in such danger that we need a hotline. I think that's an attitude that certainly they teach you on campuses. Always trust your feelings. I think that also was something that I saw too. If this is my truth and this is this is how I feel and this is my lived experience, then none of the data or none of anyone else's thoughts matter because that's the be all end all. And the idea that life is a battle between good and evil people, I also 100% saw that on my college campus. And I think that's the biggest and scariest thing because, you know, I'm, I'm a right-leaning person at NYU. That's not the most popular thing to be, certainly. <laughs> but I think for a while when I was growing up, I, I grew up in the post-2016, like that's the first election I really remember at any advanced degree. And I had a period of time when I was more conservative and I felt like I was in some sort of existential fight against people with whom I disagree. And I actually think that's my favorite one of the great untruths because I, I, there's, they're basically just saying that the, the line between good and evil goes through every heart. And I think young people have been taught that no matter what side, because we've grown up in this polarized era, no matter what side you end up on, the other side is an existential threat and someone that you need to root out and any idea that they might have regardless of its merits are just not worth listening to because they're a conservative or they're a liberal. And I think that sort of mindset and growing up and thinking that half the country or some of your relatives or some of your teachers or some of your classmates are are evil threats to everything that's good in the world is certainly not a healthy thing. And so I agree with them at that those three threads are unhelpful ways of thinking. And this is coming from from older, yes, but left-leaning people who looked in and said, maybe there's some sort of mindset 
that's going on on college campuses that's contributing to this. And to me, of course, you know, it's it's a theory, but it resonated with a lot of people across the political aisle. At no point in time do they say, oh, let's unplug your liberal cognitive biases and plug in some old school Thomas Sowell or something. Like it's not, <laughs> it's not the route that they're going down. Well, thank God for that. But just a couple of points. So first one, the politics of depression, diverging trends and internalizing symptoms among U.S. adolescents by political beliefs is a study done by the Department of Epidemiology at Columbia University. This is one of the studies that most people are tapping into about the depressive symptoms amongst liberal girls. It very clearly does say that it's not actually the wealthier white liberal girls that are the biggest problem. The ones experiencing that the ones experiencing the biggest problem the, with all of the symptoms that they are talking about, the biggest ones are poorer and blacker and the the students that are more internalizing of the actual problems that cause the symptoms, which is they are actually the ones that are more bullied, the ones that actually are at the wrong end of social battles or social scales, or the ones that have had some sort form of harm, meaning like the ones who have been sexually assaulted or have had some sort of attachment to the issues that make them depressed that go more beyond the abstract, beyond just kind of like the, I heard about it, but they're actually experiencing it. So I would encourage people to actually read deeply into the study because the study does cut across demographics. And when you get right down to it, it's what you would expect. Like if you're a liberal person and you have a parent or none of your parents are college educated and you're poorer and you're blacker, and it's really the highest amongst Native Americans, Native Alaskans, for instance, that of course you would expect all those things to be true in almost anything you study in United States history, right? Like the poor do worse, racial outgroups do worse, social minorities do worse. And that's what it says in the study. And I don't think it's a point that people should miss because we have to read all of these things really deeply. The things you said about the three untruths, I probably could shake my head in agreement with the, some of those things. I mean, there's an old part of me that wants to think that the younger generation is out of hand at all times, right? Like I totally want to believe that college campuses are places where the young people just do all these wild and crazy things. And it's so different than how I grew up. I grew up with hard work. I grew up as a Christian. I grew up and and still today a Christian. Many of us as Christians were taught that there's good and bad in the world and there's evil and whatever, and we're still taught that and we still believe it. So I think that leads to a point around, you say these guys are on the left, and I'll, I'll give you that they say that, but there is this emerging class of middle grounders, aging middle grounders, like I named some, Barry Weiss, Brett Weinstein, whatever, the first time that they encounter kind of like a challenge to their aging liberal beliefs and liberalism, they become centrist and then right-leaning centrist. And if I look at the target of all of this stuff that they are talking about, I can agree with a lot of it, except for it always seems to skew left their targets, right? So I spent time at Liberty University, for instance, right? This is something that most people don't know about me. There's no study of the type of mind meld that takes place when you're a Liberty University student. We, we can handpick all of the liberal university experiences that people have, which I personally think a lot of them are wacky and they, they do some wacky and say some wacky things, but I'm saying that as an older person. But to the right, the level of mind melding around the existential threat, as you you put it, and the good and evil of people, and the I can't the total intolerance. Listen, liberals across the country aren't passing laws right now to eliminate entire bodies of thought. They're not passing their governors. Liberal governors aren't in the country right now trying to take books about black civil rights icons out of libraries and schools. They're not empowering parents, for instance, to run up to schools and try and pass education censorship laws that stop everybody else from reading the things that they don't want to read, right? But I don't see much of that showing up in this kind of march towards calling everybody a snowflake, I guess, in a way. I actually, listen, I don't want to say this as a person who agrees with a lot of this. I just think it's much broader than people think. I think it's cutting across some bigger swaths of people. I think conservatives will say liberals are doing this. I don't know what liberals would say conservatives are doing. Well, I would say I would I would read the book a little closer in there because the basis of the article that I sent along is the basis of their first book that they co-authored. And there's there certainly, I mean, they get crap still for talking about Charlottesville and and talking about the, these issues in the right. This is not to say this is these untruths are are specific to people on the left. It is to say that 
certainly college campuses seem to be a hotbed of it. But I also think, you know, as someone on the left or as someone on the right, making sure that the young people that are on your side are thinking clearly and, and acting well is a, a laudable thing to do. It's not to say that it's not happening elsewhere, but like certainly in our, in our next book, I'm, I'm sure that no one will be thrilled to read it from cover to cover because there's <laughs> entire chapters about like conservative cancel culture and legislating censorship. And, you know, it's not, I, I think it's a, a false binary to say that like only one side would believe that life is a battle between good and evil people. Like, as I said before, I've, I felt that when I was a younger conservative growing up and then I realized like, Oh, that's the dumbest possible way that I could be engaging with people who think differently from me. And, you know, it's not, it's certainly not all in one, in one area. I do think that there are hotbeds in terms of the idea that differences of opinions are existential threats or that more speech is not a better thing by and large and more conversation is not a better thing that you should shut people down that have the wrong beliefs. I do think that there is a strong tendency in the college world. And you know, these are, Greg is a first amendment attorney that it defends people's rights of, to speak in education consistently. He just gets piled on by the right and the left for talking about this thing or defending, you know, there's, I, I think we say in the book, it's like something like a third of the attempts to get professors fired or canceled are coming from the right and from conservative places. Like there was a professor that I think got targeted for criticizing Mike Pence at one point in time. There were issues in the pandemic that were right and left. It's certainly it's part of our kind of cultural ethos, some of these ideas. And so they'll they'll get kind of chewed up and digested in different ways by different sides. But it's not to say that it's all on one side. I do think, though, that there's a particular interest in honing in on what's going on in higher education because, you know, I dropped out of school. I don't have a lot of faith in our institutions of higher learning. I don't think that they are inculcating actual debate and and robust discussion in a way that they, I think, quite recently did. Certainly back in the 20th century, students were the biggest defenders of free speech. And then that completely flipped on its head. If you look at the statistics, which is crazy. But I think we have a, a particular vested interest in pointing to what they're talking about here, about the fact that like, you know, 30, 40% of Americans will go through these institutions and how do we make them better? How do we make them serve everyone? How do we reorient them back to a place where we can have these discussions and, and cross ideological conversations and perhaps understand each other better or arrive at some solutions that we wouldn't otherwise, because that's the whole point of these institutions. It's not just to be babysat for four years and to like play a sport. Like we're supposed to be developing knowledge here. And I think that's an important place to hold up to a special scrutiny in this sense versus just, you know, what whose culture war tactics are less helpful right versus left. I do think I want to restore higher education to an ideal and making sure that we're not teaching kids that ideas are a scary and harmful thing is probably the best thing that we can possibly do in order to get that back on track. Yeah. As a libertarian, this offends all of me <laughs> in a couple ways. And I'll say it because for a few things, first of all, the majority of Americans don't go to college and the majority really don't finish that actually, you know, even when you talk about the ones that go through the ones who do go to college, first of all, that becomes kind of like a, a, a place we over end on, especially when we're talking to professors who feel like their feelings have been hurt by pushback on their ideas. So this is very much kind of like an elite kind of conversation to focus on on schools, colleges specifically, as like somehow being the mediator of all of America in some way. I just don't buy it, but I do, I do buy there's a lot of professors writing books and articles about their feelings being hurt because their ideas weren't accepted in some ways. But I tend to take a meta view. I don't like to, you know, awfulize everything. Higher ed isn't one thing. Higher ed is a series of colleges. I went to a very liberal college and I went to a very, very, very conservative college. And I can tell you that many Americans, when they do pick out colleges, have a choice and a selection of colleges that run the gamut. So some you're going to go to and you're not going to find any of this stuff that we're talking about. Some you're going to go to and you're going to find it in spades, like it's the only thing that is actually happening on those colleges. When we start looking for solutions to problems that have that amount of variety, what we end up with is some sort of, in my mind, we end up with some sort of solution that actually I think is going to take away from the variety that is in the market right now in terms of higher ed. Higher ed isn't one thing. It's many different schools that go many different directions from Christian colleges 
to liberal to conservative to earth and environmental, you know, whatever you want. Like it's kind of the world's your oyster. Now, if you're a teacher at Evergreen College in Seattle and you're a centrist aging white man who doesn't like feminist ideology, it's probably not the place you should teach. You shouldn't develop some entire ideology around why all of higher ed has gone crazy when you're just an agey white man who doesn't like feminism and you should find employment somewhere where your ideas are not going to be so-called censored. Censorship is about the government and what the government does. And this is why as a libertarian, I think this conversation for me gets a little bit frustrating because colleges isn't where I care about where the action is happening. State law is where I care about where the action is happening. But why do those have to be mutually exclusive? Why can't you care about both of those things? Because one affects my life. The other one doesn't. Like the one, when you pass a law that says my kid can't read a book in the state that I live in, that's totally different than people having arguments about college campuses. Like I don't really care what's happening on a liberal college campus. Okay, then it was the wrong podcast invite because that's what I I write about. And I just came off of a college campus. I'm allowed to care about those things and think that they're important as well. No, no, no. I'm with you on that too. Let me just be very clear. I'm not dissing that as a focus because I would focus on that too. I'm just saying, if that's what we care about, like free speech and censorship and all of that, the government literally is censoring in some places. I mean, we have a whole chapter of that in our book about particularly from the right that there is a weird legislating censorship in some instances. I do think that there's been like a misguided focus on some aspects and there have been more constitutionally egregious bills that went under the under the radar entirely. Like I do think that the, the buzz around the don't say gay bill kind of distracted from the fact that the stop woke act and its implications for state universities was clearly unconstitutional and ended up being rolled back as a result. I, I don't agree with the cultural emphasis on where we've kind of freaked out about some of this stuff, but I completely agree with you, but I think that they're related because, you know, in the end, higher education is something that they're legislating as well. And you know, I think it, I think it is close to like 30 to 40 percent. I never I don't think I said the majority of Americans go to college, but I do think that these institutions still matter. I mean, obviously, they're all interconnected and I can criticize the state laws. I can criticize the environment on college campuses that I do think kind of is leading us as a culture or is part of what's leading us as a culture further away from free speech ideals that our government and our legislation building bodies should be very inculcated in. And an unfortunate truth that I don't take any, like, I don't, this is not something that I'm saying in a, I think it's a good thing kind of way is this is concentrated on our elite campuses. And these elite campuses are disproportionately educating people that are making laws and ending up at the Supreme Court and ending up in powerful places in our country. And I don't think that's a good thing. I think we should have a much more diverse group of people that are in leadership roles. And these little campuses in New Haven should not be the like hotbed (laughs) for all of the future. But unfortunately, like these things do end up disproportionately mattering when these institutions are inculcating these ideas and then sending out our future leaders into the world to fundamentally misunderstand the basics of First Amendment law and free speech and classical liberalism and some of the values that I think are so important to our country that we've somehow forgotten on both sides of the political spectrum. Hmm. I'll have to chew on that one because I feel like those very elite places are turning out a variety of people that... No, that's exactly my point, though. That's exactly my point, because I think it's creating on on both sides of the spectrum. It's, it's creating this existential fight in these campuses where I felt that way when I got to NYU and I was like basically the only person on the right and I was hiding my Jordan Peterson book was under my bed in my freshman dorm <laughs> and I was and I was like wow everyone hates me here and I am the only one here and all these people are so far left and I and it certainly was true that I was in a disproportionate minority but you know I picked NYU and I knew that was what was coming but being in that sort of environment when there's such a loud dominant political voice I had at first the reaction to say like, I need to be even bigger and more conservative and more outspoken as a result, which is a terrible reaction and something that I very quickly matured out of, thankfully. But I think that that sort of environment is creating people on the right and the left on either you get sucked into the crazy left wing stuff happening in Yale or you get sucked into the like Fed sock opposite reactionary version of that. And I think that's playing out in our politics. Certainly the I agree with you that there are 
Republican legislators that are coming out of these schools that are clearly not versed in basic free speech principles and want to fight bad big government policies with bad big government policies as well. How do you think the social media part where we started relates to the higher ed part? Mm. How do you link these issues together? I think a lot of these ideas are moving faster between people and like these bad kind of cognitive distortions and these bad lessons can proliferate across campuses, across people, across demographics at a much quicker rate than they ever could before. Whereas I feel like we would have just had a couple weird loony lefty colleges or a couple weird conservative colleges. And there's a kind of melting of everything. And I do think if you look at student ideas about free speech and free expression and whether that's an important value, just plummets around 2013. And I still don't have a satisfying answer as for why that might be aside from the fact that that idea caught on and was able to spread in a way that I don't think it would have been able to in any other period of history. I mean, all of a sudden like that, it's like kids are shouting down campus speakers. Kids are having violent protests evolve over somebody that they don't like coming to campus. And it's, you know, I don't know how else that happens across the whole country in a single span of a year, except for that ideas are proliferating in a way that they never have before. Well, on that last point, as I have said multiple times in this podcast, I really don't believe there's anything new under the sun. I mean, that was happening in the 70s. That was happening in the 80s. It was happening in the 90s. The issues were just different, right? Like across college campuses in the 60s, that's where you got a lot of the kind of like the countercultural movement. The free speech movement, 100%. The Berkeley free speech movement. Yeah, they were doing sit-ins and takeovers, building takeovers. And the same conservative speakers that were coming to speak then were saying the same thing then that they're saying now. This is terrible. We need to get back to a time when students wouldn't do this. We need to be free to come and say whatever we want on these campuses. And the free speech movement came out of the exact same situation that we have right now. But it had a fundamentally inverted attitude about speech. It was students on the left who were being suppressed by more conservative institutions and more conservative administrators that felt that their speech rights were being assaulted, who were fighting for their own speech rights versus now you have students on the left with administrators on the left and students are saying that they should be protected from speech that they don't like. I do think it's fundamentally different. This, If you look historically at the attitudes and understanding of free speech and its importance on campus, historically, consistently, students were better than professors and administrators and the general public because they understood that they were there to trade ideas. And, and historically, more left-leaning students were being kind of suppressed by more conservative, older administrators. And then sometime around 2013, that flipped very quickly, where all of a sudden the attitude was completely different. And I think social media certainly had to have played a role in that. I don't think that there's any satisfying single answer that you could ever have. But certainly the free speech movement is not playing out 2.0 now. Now it's the I should be free from having to hear your speech movement. Well, I'm going to wait to see how you guys actually tie the knot on that one. I mean, my, my quick response to that would be, I don't know that I see it as that clean in terms of the old movement and the new movement. When, you know, black students were taking over student buildings and protesting and shutting down speeches and shutting down people that were associated with Richard Nixon or other conservatives when they would come to speak are exactly the ancestral group to the ones that today in Black Lives Matter and other groups that will shut down a conservative speaker. And the conservative speakers of the 60s and the ones who are being shut down today had a very similar kind of speech pattern. And the ones who were doing the shutting down had a very consistent speech pattern. And that's like 50 years of, you know, linkage between the two. In the 70s, they, they did the same thing, totally shut down speeches, take over buildings. They didn't want to hear kind of the conservative opinion. William Buckley or somebody would come to, to the college campus. They want to shut it down. I don't disagree with you. Certainly. There's the Berkeley free speech movement, which is one thing to keep in mind, but it was obviously enormously influential. Then there's certainly decades, and we talk about this in the book of Herbert Marcuse, who wrote Repressive Tolerance in, I think, 65, which was a very influential essay about how the way to make progress is to oppress people who are oppressing us essentially ideologically. And I'm paraphrasing, but essentially said that the way to progress is by suppressing conservative regressive views. And that idea and that thought pattern, I think, started proliferating on campus in a, a smaller sense in the 60s. And so I do agree with you that there are ideological ancestors to the current movement that we see right now. But I think that there's an 
very important distinction to be made between what happened in the 60s in Berkeley and what's happening now. And one was wanting to have free speech on campus and the other one is wanting to be free from speech on campus. And I think it didn't just come out of the woodwork, but the idea that this concept kind of exploded and that if you look at shoutdowns and and issues with speech on campus, that just explodes. And the percentage of students was gradually getting worse and worse and worse with those who did not really believe in fundamental free speech values. And all of a sudden that skyrockets because it all of a sudden became a medicalized thing where you're saying, I need a safe space. I'm unsafe. You're going to wound me. You're going to harm me. And I think that idea truly like that is something that I see constantly in my generation. And that idea makes it a much more serious existential fight, which I think is why people started reacting as poorly as they have to campus speech in the past decade. And you're linking that specifically to social media. I think one of the reasons I'm kind of laughing is I'm thinking about any of my kids ever saying anything like that. <laughs> like, right? Oh, no, I mean, I would never say anything like that. And I've got like, I mean, my dad's 85. And if I were to ever I would come home with he would say something and I'd be like, oh, that's offensive. And you'd be like, I don't care. Like, go away. Um, so it depends on the context, 100%. I'm with your dad on this. I'm with your dad. Oh, no, I know. I am too. I'm with my dad too. He's so right. But thank God he controlled for it. Otherwise, I might have been very wounded in the course of this podcast. I mean, I think a lot of people listening to this are like me. Maybe one of the reasons I poo-poo a lot of this is, number one, it's not my lived experience. I live in a, a rural part of America where I don't think this is the discussion we're having every day. And I don't think that our kids are coming home like this. And we have a state college right by us that's very well-traveled. We have a couple of tech colleges and we have a Benedictine Christian college that's really historic and well-known. And like my oldest went to that college and my other kids are like in the pipeline at different stages, but I just couldn't imagine this. This isn't our reality. hundred percent. Like this isn't what we're living, where we are. hundred percent. There's a, there's a bias of people in these bubbles, a hundred percent. And I, don't disagree with you about that, but I also th don't think that means that we do, we can't talk about it. And I'm I'm glad that we're talking about it from different perspectives. We should talk about it. I just think your dad should be the one that talks about it more, <laughs> more than everybody else. I think your dad should write the book, uh, and it should be titled like "What the Hell Is Going On." Well, that's the ultimate get off my lawn sort of thing. He it just is. made me like a Gen Z version of it, though. Well, listen, I really appreciate you coming on today. I was excited about it, and I'm even more excited about it now that you did because you really hold your own. Yeah, glad we did it. You have a way that I'm really interested because I'm interested not necessarily in my own thoughts. I'm interested in what's coming behind me. Like what's the, I told you I've got kids at multiple, I've got kids older than you and younger than you. I have two millennials, two Gen Zs and one Gen Alpha. And I'm noticing the difference in the way that they experience the world. Mm -hmm. And I'm really sitting back wondering what the future is going to be yeah. for all of these thoughts. And I think that you are on the pulse of the future of where this is going. Thank you. So realize any of the pushback that you got today from me is the get off the lawn pushback that you can just expect from Chris Stewart. Of course. That's what we're here for. So please come back again. The lost debate. I would love that. Yeah, totally. I really would love to have you back on. Thank you so much. And for everybody listening to this show, it's been another episode of the Citizen Stewart Show. And as always, we are really appreciative of all that you have been doing to share our show with others. We want you to keep doing that. Please, if you haven't subscribed yet, subscribe wherever you get your podcast. If you can, please leave a rating and give us some feedback on the show. If you would like to give us direct feedback or some show ideas, you can do that in two ways. You can leave us a voicemail message at 321-213-9171. Again, that's 321-213-9171. Or you can send an email to citizenstewartshow at lostdebate.com. And on that last part, we would encourage you to go check out the other Lost Debate podcast. Lost Debate is a network of podcasters. We have the number one podcast in India. I like to keep saying this, a uh, true crime podcast. Of course, Ricky and Ravi also do the Lost Debate podcast, which you should go and check out and watch. And Ricky, where can people find more of your information? Um, I think the best central point there is Ricky Schlott on Twitter, R-I-K-K-I-S-C-H-L-O-T-T. -T. There you have it, folks. We will catch you on the next episode of The Citizen Stewart Show. 